This podcast is brought to you by the Association for Diplomatic Studies and Training, ADST. For more, check out our website at adst.org. ADST, American Diplomacy, Warts and All. In her 1998 interview, Julia Chang Block, the first Asian American to become an ambassador, recalls firsthand the last months of the monarchy's reign and the events that shaped Nepali democracy shortly afterwards. Ambassador Block served at her post in Nepal from 1989 to 1992 and also became a leading organizer for the U.S. Agency for International Development, USAID, programs in Nepal. They asked me whether I'd be interested in Nepal. And frankly, I said, is there any other choice? (laughs) I said, because I felt that Nepal might be boring. I was not interested in an an ambassadorial assignment, even a historic one, Mm -hmm. if I was going to be professionally bored. I've always had meaningful jobs. Mm-hmm. I'm not interested in the status yeah. or the, yeah. uh, what do you call yeah. it, the, uh, uh, the visibility. visibility yeah. Two other countries were named, uh, but after a long sort of deliberation with my husband, we decided on Nepal. Mm-hmm. And thank goodness, of course, it, it wasn't very boring because mm-hmm. uh, they had a revolution soon after I left. When I arrived, it was absolute monarchy, lovely country, beautiful scenery. As far as uh, embassy work was concerned, mm-hmm. it's a very sleepy little post, yeah. outpost. Nobody worked terribly hard, mm-hmm. with the exception of maybe one officer. Even had things not changed, mm-hmm. I worked differently. And again, my focus in the beginning was on aid, mm-hmm. because that was the, 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 the focus of our relationship. Mm-hmm. And there I had to make sure that I didn't overstep my bonds as ambassador and get into the uh, responsibilities of the aid yeah. director at, at the same time. you know. It was okay because I was learning my job as, mm-hmm. uh, as an ambassador, mm-hmm. but that was very easy because I think I've been in tra- training all my life for that, yeah. for that assignment. In Nepal, we had a Peace Corps, we had USIA, mm-hmm. we, you know, state, I knew less about yeah. State Department than the other agencies. Uh-huh. I mean, we had large uh-huh. AID, yeah. comparatively speaking. Mm-hmm. The only other agency I didn't know was Defense and uh, CIA. Uh, CIA. Yeah. And so I immediately set about to run a mission. Mm-hmm. And not the State Department, mm-hmm. not an embassy, and that hasn't that hadn't been done. So that yeah. was interesting, mm-hmm. that the whole mm-hmm. mission could work together for you know mm-hmm. a, a national objective. Uh, yeah. Our American interest uh, in Nepal when I first arrived was to have to support Nepal's sovereignty mm-hmm. and to support Nepal's um, economic development. It was minuscule. It was uh, when I arrived, I think it was at about twelve or fifteen million. But Nepal is a small country. That was a large sum mm-hmm. for a country of, uh, uh, with the absorbed capacity mm-hmm. uh, of Nepal. Uh, we had at one time been the largest donor, mm-hmm. but you know, as the years went mm-hmm. by, uh, certainly the Japanese and the Germans, even mm-hmm. some of the Scandinavian countries mm-hmm. supplanted us. Mm-hmm. But nevertheless, we had influence because we were one of the few countries with a mission on the ground. The monarchy, uh, well, in Nepal at that time, you know, you, you could deal with maybe six people mm-hmm. in Kathmandu mm-hmm. because they made the decisions. Yeah. Yeah. So it was a very small community. And how did you, you deal with it with respect? You try, of course, to, uh, to have some dialogue, to have some relationship. It wasn't always easy because monarchies are very closed, by and large. Lots of ceremony. For example, the custom was that when an ambassador arrived, you waited six months for your first appointment with the king. I arrived in late September. I had to come back on some personal business in November. I went to the king's private secretary and I said, look, 
I'm going home. Does the king want to give me any messages to take back? This is a good time for me to uh, certainly make a case. And lo and behold, I got an appointment. Kathmandu was a flutter, you yeah. know, the diplomatic uh, community was a flutter, you know, how, sure. how did this happen? Yeah. Uh-huh. And my, again, the interview was supposed to be, uh, if you got 15 to 20 minutes, you were lucky. Mm-hmm. I was told this by my staff. Mm-hmm. I was brief, prepped by everybody. Mm-hmm. The uh, palace's secretariat said, you know, no more than 20 minutes mm-hmm. or whatever, mm-hmm. and when, when he tells you to go, you get up and you yeah. go. Well, our, our meeting lasted for almost an hour, mm-hmm. and the private sec- secretary was beside himself. On February 18, 1990, the Nepali Congress, a pro-democratic party formally banned by the monarchy, and the United Left Front, a coalition of socialist and Maoist political parties, formally called for protests by the people to begin across Nepal. The protests quickly combined with general strikes, and police forces began to collide with protesters. Ambassador Block describes her work after this revolution began. We were working around the clock. Uh, We called our uh, emergency action committee together. From all that was coming out of Washington, my first priority was to make sure that all Americans in Nepal were safe. That was no easy matter because Nepal is a tourist destination. But our EAC committee worked very well. My deputy at that time, Al Tebow, was really terrific. We became the information central for all the uh, Western embassies because most of my colleagues were out of Kathmandu. Mm-hmm. That's not so much just in February, but when everything came to a head in April. It was certainly not foreseen in terms of the results, not even by the uh, protagonists. The Congress Party had been the opposition in opposition for a long time. They were either in exile, they were banned. Uh, many of them were in prison. But beginning in February, they started marches and demonstrations. Uh, most of the leaders were under house arrest. And things started sort of placidly. Ne- Nepalis are not violent people. And the demonstrations g- gathered steam, partly aggravated by, at that time, the Indo- Indo-Nepal dispute, where India cut off all but two access points, or transit points. And so goods were scarce, the middle class was getting somewhat disgruntled because of that. And I think part of the problem was the way the, uh, the, uh, the government handled the protests, because they were making no concessions. And by the time they began to realize that and talk to the opposition, to take the opposition more seriously, it was getting too late. That's what happened. And about 50 people were killed. And for Nepal, that was, I mean, that was a horrendous act to have people killed. Mm-hmm. It just, the momentum just built. Partly, I think, also, the, what was happening around the world. Yes, we're talking about the fall of the Soviet exactly, Union. Exactly, exactly. Uh, Word was getting yeah, into yeah. Nepal, even uh, the Himalayan kingdom mm-hmm. of Nepal. And people wanted more say, because it was a very closed mm-hmm. society. And the professionals began to get involved. Mm-hmm. Professionals in you know, in the medical field, professionals in, at the universities, professionals even in the civil service started demonstrating. And as more people were killed, more of the professionals came out. And we were one of the few places where there was a lot of, there was clear information because we talked to both sides. And we made sure that our message was minimize violence and open dialogue. 
And, you know, we were perceived by the revolutionaries as having helped their, their, their mm -hmm. movement. Mm -hmm. Congress sent a letter, again, espousing no. support for democracy. Our Congress. Our Congress. Yeah. And, but at the same time, we never lost access to the, to the government. So again, it was a question of balance. When the dust settled, the government really sent us all kinds of appreciation letters. And with the new government, we had complete access, even with the communists. So I think that we were able to help them consolidate their democracy. Uh, it's still not, you know, democracies are very fragile. It's still very new. Uh, still a lot of, lot of work remains in, in the consolidation process. But I think that we built probably a model democracy support program. We developed and established a program for what we consider the transition phase and then moving into the consolidation phase. We were there immediately because we started work. We had people on the ground helping with the constitutional reform process in May. I mean, the, 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 the revolution succeeded in April. Oh, boy. They came to us because we had complete access. Mm -hmm. And they asked us for, for help. Mm -hmm. uh, we worked, we helped with the constitutional reform mm -hmm. phase. Uh, we then uh, worked up a program to support the development of parliament, uh, the parliament. Then we looked at the judiciary, because that's another anchor of, uh, uh, of democracy. Mm -hmm. We stepped up our, our exchanges. I got AID to fund mm -hmm. USIA's uh, international visitors, mm -hmm. we, you know, because we had to get the leadership out mm -hmm. to see the world and broaden their horizons, yeah. because they had no experience, mm -hmm. no experience in governing. I ran an integrated mission. It was not easy to get AID to support USIA activities. Mm -hmm. I had to make them see that it was not an AID activity or a USIA activity. It was a democracy support program for Nepal. Mm -hmm. It was a U.S. democracy support program for Nepal. And we had a task force, which I chair, and I think only the ambassador can chair, because mm -hmm. you've got to make your, all your components work together. Ambassador Block's Deputy Chief of Mission, Albert Thiebaud, next discusses her, the upheaval, and Block's leadership during this time. Ambassador Julia Chang Block, also a Republican political appointee, a very interesting lady with whom I worked very closely. She was the first Asian American ambassador ever and was very proud of that fact. She had been born in China, come at the age of eight or nine uh, to the United States. And although she was a political appointee, and I think her ties are to Senator Mitch McConnell, sort of sponsor, guru, if you will, from Kentucky. But um, and her husband is a is a well-to-do businessman based here in Washington. She had previously been a Peace Corps volunteer in Malaysia, but then became a senior administrator again from beginning with Reagan and through Bush. She had become over a period of eight years had become a senior administrator in in Peace Corps, was regional director for U.S. in USIA, and was an assistant administrator in AID. So it's not as if she had no, no foreign affairs ex ex yeah. experience. And particularly those, those particular organizations had active uh, programs uh, in, uh, in, in, in Nepal. Nepal. Exactly. I mean, so this, is, this is serious stuff in That's Nepal. right. And uh, she was a serious person. So state was just the most recent of her uh, you know, foreign affairs agencies, if you will. The major event of that period, and it was a protracted process, was the shift from royal, direct royal or autocracy to 
democratic elected government. And um, it did not happen easily. It did not happen overnight. And uh, but in f but fortunately, it happened with uh, very little violence. In fact, with almost none. And um, with the U.S. government and Ambassador Block in particular playing a very helpful, very constructive role, very supportive role. This is something that we supported at the same time without the king being humiliated or his role in Nepalese society being uh, significantly uh, undermined. So it was a very careful balancing act. And um, at the time, it appeared to be a, a very successful transition. It, things have happened since then that, that have brought out the, the weaknesses, especially among the democratic parties, and, but also in the monarchy. But uh, at the time, it was, it was a great, great accomplishment. First and foremost, Nepal is, has always been an independent country. It was never colonized. They're very proud of that. And uh, uh, so it did not have the uh, institutional infrastructure that for all of its shortcomings, for example, in Pakistan, still is fairly meaningful that the British created elsewhere in Bangladesh and Sri Lanka and India and in Pakistan. All, these are all areas which the British control. It did not have that experience. The monarchy is also the, the same family has been and who are the creators of today's Nepal uh, have been in power for uh, 200 and 225, 250 years. It's the same uh, ruling family. It was different also that it's a Himalayan country. And um, uh, that's important because ethnically uh, you have a mixture of, it's a different mixture of peoples. It's different also in that there's a significant Buddhist element and Tibetan element, Tibetan cultural influence, Tibetan physical and uh, presence as well through the refugees from Tibet. Buddhism, though, very different from the Buddhism I encountered in Sri Lanka. Very different, too, in that the army, maybe this is what makes it a little closer to Pakistan, but the army has a very important, and always has had a traditionally important role. Different also in that the social classes, the social class that has dominated Nepal for many generations is very narrowly based. And uh, there's a big gap between the, these uh, Hindu castes and a very large percentage of the population who are of um, uh, Mongoloid, semi-Tibetan people. The, the famous Sherpas who lead people up Mount Everest are from that kind of background. M many of your so-called Gurkha soldiers from Nepal are of that background also. It's, the country is different also from the others in that there's only one significant city, and that's Kathmandu. So uh, Kathmandu dominates Nepal and always has dominated it since the unification of Nepal in the late 18th century. So Nepal is also different in that, as the, the, their expression puts it, they are between the, um, how do they put it now? It boils down to being between a rock and a hard okay. place. Uh, Kathmandu is, is about uh, five hours by road from India and about four and a half to five hours by road from China. And so uh, it's, it's, it's squeezed and historically, culturally, linguistically. It has been, it, it's placed between two enormous neighbors, China and India. And it has to be very mindful of their relations with both of these two countries. 
Um, so all of these add up to make it a very um, separate, very separate, very distinct from the other countries of the subcontinent. I think from the perspective of the Nepalese government, our presence there was absolutely of primary importance to them. Um, as you rightly inferred, if not the presence of the Indian Embassy, the neighboring presence of India and of China, China was always a, a matter of, of great immediacy to them. This was in the terminal phase of the Soviet Union, and so the Soviet presence, which was never very important in any event in Nepal, was, uh, was not of momentous concern to them. Uh, we also had uh, significant activities that we supported there, uh, a, an aid program, uh, an aid mission that was large. We have a vi vibrant Peace Corps presence as well. Uh, that uh, had a remarkable impact at the village level that, where those volunteers were stationed. And um, so the commitment that the United States demonstrated through the, its presence and through having an activist ambassador like Ambassador Block to the uh, sovereignty and independence of uh, Nepal was absolutely vital. And I'll get to this in how this became important in a practical sense, not just in an abstract, as an abstract concept of international law. We had a very immediate access to the top leadership of the Nepalese government, and the Nepalese were very mindful of any statements that we might make about them. Now, getting Washington's attention to Nepal, of course, was another matter, and uh, that was, uh, was never easy. Nepal is a very small country. And so um, to get the attention of policymakers, not just for Nepal, but for any country of that stature or lack thereof, is, uh, is a challenge. But having an ambassador like uh, Ambassador Block certainly helped, no question about that. Well, as I think I mentioned in our last session, she had had considerable Washington experience with the, at a, at a policy, she, although she was a political appointee, through the Reagan administration, she had been a senior official of USIS, of the Peace Corps, and of AID. She was an assistant administrator for AID before she came to, for Asia, before she came to Kathmandu. So she, so it wasn't, she wasn't a babe in the woods. And, um, and she had been on the Hill as well, so she knew the congressional dimension to this. I think that her personality and her, uh, just her, her character were such that uh, she was not a person you could ignore. And uh, gender was never an issue in terms of uh, access. She very quickly uh, established her credentials, as I say, was able to play an active role. But it also gave uh, the United States in, and the ambassador an opportunity to promote democratic values and uh, which we then implemented not only in the form of public statements uh, in which we encouraged the democratic process, not only in terms of giving private advice to both sides, that is to the palace as the royal establishment there is known, and to the political parties, uh, but also in terms of providing aid programs, aid-sponsored, aid-funded programs that uh, included specialists on constitution writing, for example, mm -hmm. on legal systems and the like. Now this is commonplace uh, today, uh, speaking in 2005, but I'm not so sure it was quite as prevalent a 
practice uh, back then. And so, uh, but we put it into place in Nepal, again, led by the ambassador, who, because of her command of the bureaucratic process and of individuals in Washington, uh, would get a hearing on this and could certainly make a valid case. Thank you for listening to Ambassador Block describe her time in Nepal. ADST is an independent nonprofit organization located in Arlington, Virginia. ADST's oral history collection, begun in 1986, contains over 2,500 oral histories unveiling the horrifying, thought-provoking, and the absurd events that help shape foreign policy. If you have enjoyed listening to this podcast, please make a tax-deductible donation to allow ADST to continue its work at www.adst.org.